are studying in a brief series of lessons on Sunday morning the groundwork in Genesis, God's groundwork in Genesis. And Genesis is a book about groundwork. It is the book of beginnings. And when we began this brief series in the first part of the year, we're still really in the first part of the year, but earlier in the first part of the year, we said what better way to begin the year than to think about the book of beginnings. And so many very, very important and eternal principles that can be found in the book of Genesis. The groundwork for God himself, obviously, as we began this study. We looked at the groundwork for God's existence. And as I mentioned some time ago this year, I want us to spend a great deal of time thinking about those things that reinforce our faith, not only in the existence of God, but in His goodness, as we have already studied, the goodness of God, the groundwork for God's goodness. To think about the gratitude that we should be manifesting and showing this year and every year, every day of our lives for as long as we live for the God of heaven. And last Sunday morning we talked about that gratitude being expressed and manifested in the form of worship to God as God has directed. And we looked at Genesis chapter 4, and the first incident, recorded incident, of worship to God there with Cain and Abel. And so many very important principles that are established there. The groundwork for gratitude, the groundwork for worship. And how important is that, especially in the time in which we live and when we find, in which we find so many who are simply doing their own thing, doing what makes them happy, and convincing themselves that God will be happy with it, whether or not it is in harmony with His will or not. Tonight, in fact, with that emphasis this year on the Word, I couldn't think of a better psalm than the 119th psalm in which to emphasize the, the power of the Word. It's a psalm that exalts the Word. We've studied in recent lessons, fairly recent, I don't know how long ago, but we have looked at the first 40 verses of that psalm, but in thinking about a series with which to follow the series in Philippians, which we just concluded last week, I thought about Psalm 119, and we'll begin with verse 41 tonight, and we'll look at the various uh, uh, segments of that psalm because it does exalt the Word of God in so many beautiful ways. And so we encourage you to be here tonight as we begin that series. But as we near the conclusion of this brief series with this and one other lesson, the Lord willing, we're going to look at a subject that we looked at not long ago in a somewhat different connection as we looked at our series on growth and the Christian, the New Testament Christian grows in various ways. Grace was one of them. But we're going to revisit that subject this morning because it's a subject that needs to be revisited time and time again. The subject of grace and the groundwork for God's grace that we see in the book of Genesis. And is it important based upon the misapprehension and the misapplication and the misunderstandings about grace that we understand and appreciate what the Bible teaches about grace? We're not only to appreciate the grace of God, we're to appropriate the grace of God. And there are so many, and tragically even some in the church, who in times past have made it abundantly clear that they have 
left God's groundwork in Scripture concerning the subject of grace. And I mention these not to be unkind at all, but to simply point out, as the Apostle Paul did on occasion by name, some who had departed from the faith in his time, and they're recorded upon the pages of Holy Writ for as long as time stands, Hymenaeus, Alexander, etc. But some time ago, a man by the name of, of Glenn Owen, preacher at the Midtown Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and this illustrates why we need to understand the grace of God and how even gospel preachers can leave their moorings and embrace a position that is foreign to Scripture. Glenn Owen mentioned this in a sermon. We are saved by grace alone, plus nothing. You are saved by faith, period. There is nothing you can do to be saved. Now, I don't claim to be a highly intelligent individual, but that statement in itself, those two statements seem to be self-contradictory. Listen to it again. We are saved by grace alone plus nothing. And then he follows that statement with, you are saved by faith, period. If I'm saved by grace alone plus nothing, then I don't need faith. And I'm not saved by faith, period. And then he adds, there's nothing you can do to be saved. I think it simply shows the inconsistency of error and points out why we need the consistency of truth. Years ago in 1990, October 31st, Rubel Shelley, in his Love Lines publication or article, wrote this about grace. Our salvation arises entirely and only from grace. It is entirely of grace through faith. That, again, is contradictory, I think, as the same as Glenn Owen. And then he adds this later in the statement. It is a scandalous and outrageous lie to teach that salvation arises from human activity. We do not contribute one whit to our salvation. That's very clear, isn't it? terms of the statement. And I mentioned those to illustrate how important it is that we understand the Bible's teaching on grace and to affirm again that we can understand the Bible's teaching on grace and we can appropriate the grace of God as God intends for us to appropriate it and that we must appropriate it that it is not grace alone that saves, nor is it grace through faith alone that saves, as we will remind ourselves of in this study. Do people understand the grace of God? Obviously not. And those two statements from men who have preached the gospel of Christ make that abundantly clear. And so there are some principles about grace in Genesis, just as there were principles about worship in Genesis that we noticed last week. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 6, we see God's groundwork for grace in the book of Genesis, a groundwork that in principle has never changed, nor will it ever change. Genesis 6, verse 8, 
simply reads, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And as we mentioned before, that is the first time that grace is used in Scripture. And when we see something used for the first time, we need to take special note of any principle that is established there that is an eternal principle. And there is one established here as to how the grace of God is applied throughout God's dealings with man in every dispensation of time, patriarchal, mosaic, and now the Christian age. As we've said before, keep in mind the principle by which God extends His grace to man has never changed nor will it ever change. In Noah's day, there were certain particulars or specifics that were required of Noah in order for Noah to receive the grace of God. Well, how do we know that from the statement I just read? But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we know that the context here is, if you go back to verse 5, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have made from the face of the earth, whom I have created, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then we're back to verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we've asked this question before in relation to our study of grace. Upon what basis did God extend that grace? Well, remember one of the statements we read from one of these, men said we are saved by grace alone plus nothing. Was Noah saved by grace alone, plus nothing? That's what we have to ask. And in asking that question in the past, we have asked, could God have been consistent with his own nature and saved Noah by grace alone, plus nothing? Now, Brother Owen in his comment does go on to say you're saved by faith, period. But again, it's an inconsistent and self-contradictory statement. Either we're saved by grace alone plus nothing, or we're not saved by grace alone plus nothing. Well, in giving him the benefit of the doubt and saying you're saved by faith, period, then Noah must have had faith. And he did. But what kind of faith was it? Look at verse 9 of Genesis 6. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. We've talked about walking with God and how important it is to walk with God and what it means to walk with God. Enoch was said to have walked with God. In uh, chapter 5, uh, J.C. had a very excellent lesson recently in, in our Wednesday night series on Enoch, this great patriarch, of whom it is said that he walked with God, verse 24 of chapter 5, and he was not, that is, he was not to be found, for God took him. He was translated. He did not see death. But as we noted last Sunday in reference to Abel and the fact that Abel made his offering by faith, Hebrews 11.4, when we turn to that same 11th chapter of Hebrews, we also see something about both Enoch and Noah. Now we've already seen it in Genesis 5.24 that Enoch walked with God and that Noah, verse 9, if we read verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, not sinless, but upright and blameless. Noah walked with God. But Hebrews 11 also 
gives us the same additional information about these two men that we gleaned about Abel last week. By faith, Abel offered God a more excellent sacrifice, remember? But what about Enoch, verse 5? The next verse of Hebrews 11 says, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. Now listen, for before he was taken, he had testimony, this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God. Genesis 5.24 says he walked with God. Commenta uh, the commentary on that, divine commentary, says what? He pleased God. Then verse 6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. That's activity. That's action. To please God, you must have faith in God. What kind of faith? The faith that seeks God. The faith that walks with God. The faith that worships God. Well, what about Noah, verse 7 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. What about? He what? Glenn Owen's statement, we're saved by grace alone plus nothing. You are saved by faith, period. There is nothing you can do to be saved. Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, sat with godly fear, sat, S-A-T, with godly fear. No, moved with godly fear. His faith caused him to what? Act. Just as Abel's faith caused him to offer, Noah's faith caused him to move with godly fear and to do what? Prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to what? Faith. How can you miss it? How can you miss the fact that faith must act in order to appropriate or to accept the grace of God? God could not be consistent with his nature and save Noah arbitrarily without any response by faith on Noah's part. Remember what Peter said at the household of Cornelius in Acts 10, 34 and 35? When he was convicted of the fact that Gentiles were now to be recipients of the gospel, he said, truly I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, as the King James puts it, but he who fears him and what? Works righteousness is accepted by him. He who fears him and works, fears and works, by what? By a faith that moves. By a faith that acts. The grace of God does not save us alone plus nothing. The grace of God does not save us alone by faith, period. That is faith only. There is something not only that we can do to be saved, there is something we must do in order to be saved. And it is not a scandalous and outrageous lie to teach that salvation arises from human activity. The inspired writer of Hebrews taught in the verses we have just examined and more that could be examined that indeed salvation, salvation involves human activity. Yes, it's the grace of God that is the groundwork 
of salvation. And without that, no human activity can save. We fully concur with that. But to say, but to say that salvation is not involving, does not involve human activity, to, to say we do not contribute one whit to our salvation. And I wish I could tell you this morning that since 1990, when those words were written by Rubel Shelley, that things have gotten so much better in terms of those like him, in terms of what they have now embraced, taught, or repented of, but that has not. It has not changed with him. I do not know about the current status of Glenn Owen, but I do know that there are far too many, even those not far from us, who do not fully embrace nor understand nor teach what the Bible teaches about the grace of God. And what a shame and tragedy that is. But indeed, indeed, we need to understand that salvation is not earned, but that it is appropriated by active, obedient faith. Noah had to build that ark, didn't he? And not only did he have to build that ark, he had to build it just the way God said build it. I've mentioned this illustration before that I have studied in years past with non-Christians and have used this example of Noah to establish early on in the Bible study the authority of Scripture and that God means what he says. And I've read in those studies the dimensions of the ark. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, Genesis 6:14. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and so on. And I've asked the question in those studies, how long was the ark to be? 300 cubits. What if Noah had reasoned this way? And he had said, well, it's going to work out better for me. It looks like to be 298 cubits. And that is just two cubits short of 300 cubits. Will that not be sufficient? And I have asked those non-Christians, would the ark have floated if Noah had reasoned that way and made the ark 298 cubits? And to my recollection, not a single person ever said, of course it would have floated, preacher. The grace of God will certainly cover two measly cubits. The only answer I ever remember hearing from non-Christians at the time was, no, it wouldn't float. And I would ask the follow-up question, why not? And the answer was, because God said, make it 300 cubits. And that's what he wanted. And that's what he required. And when Noah made that ark just the way God said, and he did, because Genesis 6.22 says, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. What happened then? The chapter headings were put there by man. Chapter 7 
follows right on the heels of that statement, Genesis 6.22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, listen to it, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. The grace of God was extended to Noah with an invitation to come into the ark. Based on what? Noah's having earned the right to enter? No. But based upon his obedient faith, which demonstrated his righteousness before God. And God said, now I've seen it. And God wants to see it in every generation. Though he requires us not to build an ark, but to be a part of and to build up the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the New Testament. And very briefly, two examples, one of which we've looked at before, but we'll briefly look at it again. And then one I don't think we've spent any time with, or much, if at all, in this connection at least, concerning the appropriation of the grace of God under the new covenant. And the demonstration of the fact that it differs not one whit in principle from what Noah had to do. Saul of Tarsus, remember? In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Saul of Tarsus, then the Apostle Paul said, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, for I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Have you ever heard of a more poignant expression of appreciation for the grace of God than that one? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. I, it was not wasted on me. I made sure His grace, His favor was not wasted upon me because I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God. That was what motivated me. You could throw in love and tie all that in there too, of course. By the grace of God, I am what I am. When did he write that? He wrote it after he had met the Lord in that vision on the Damascus Road. And we've pointed out many times he had to see the Lord in order to become an apostle, not to become a Christian, but he had to see the Lord to become an apostle because everyone who was an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord and Paul had not seen him. And so he had to see him to qualify him for his apostleship but his obedience to the gospel differs beyond that, not one whit from yours or mine. He cried out to the Lord, what will you have me do? When he recognized it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord said, go into the city of Damascus, and there it will be told you what you must do. And then the Lord appeared to the disciple Ananias, told Ananias, go to him, and said to him what? For behold, he is praying. And we've pointed out many times that prayer was the only thing Paul knew to do at that time because he hadn't heard anything else he needed to do. And tragically, the dominant position in religion today is that's all you do need to do is pray for salvation. That's what Saul of Tarsus was doing, and it didn't get him salvation. But Ananias did come to him and said to him what? And now why are you waiting, or why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, 
calling on the name of the Lord. Go into the city and it will be told you what you what? Must do. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. By the grace of God, I am what I am, he then later said. So he was saved by grace, but it wasn't grace alone. And it wasn't grace through faith alone because he was trying to pray to God. Three days and three nights wouldn't eat or drink, filled with guilt. All he could do was pray, and yet that was not sufficient for salvation. It was only, it was only when Ananias, at the instruction of the Lord Jesus himself, came to Saul of Tarsus and said, Now, you believe, obviously, you've confessed, you've obviously repented, one thing remains, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Thus calling on the name of the Lord, not by praying a prayer, but by obeying the gospel. Noah built an ark. And demonstrated by so doing, in exactly the way God had said to do it, that he was righteous before God in that generation. Saul of Tarsus had to arise and be baptized to wash away his sins and to demonstrate before God in this, the Christian dispensation, that he was righteous before God. And everyone must also do just that. But let's briefly notice as we close the Ephesians. And what is said about them? In the Ephesian letter at chapter 1, verse 7, Paul, now writing to these converted Gentiles, says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through the blood, forgiveness according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of His grace alone, according to the riches of His grace through faith alone, as these men have written, whom we've quoted today? No. We can see. We can see. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 beginning, even when we were dead in trespasses, made, he's talking about God, verse 4, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's grace again from the apostle who appreciated the grace of God so tremendously. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. There's that grace again in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here it is again, verse 8, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Oh, yes, he then says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then he adds, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There we have the whole picture in verses 8 through 10. Grace is the source of our salvation and obedient faith is the means of appropriating that grace and where does that culminate it culminates in baptism just as it did with Saul of Tarsus and just as it did with those to whom Paul penned this epistle to the Ephesians and a similar one to the Colossians in Colossians 2 and verse 13, 
And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having forgiven you. The act of forgiving takes place simultaneously with being made alive together with him. Where does that take place? It takes place in the tomb. In what tomb? In the watery tomb of baptism. The Ephesians were saved by grace, but not by grace alone. Verse 8 of chapter 2, as we read, says, through faith. But what does he mean then when he says, not of works, lest anyone should boast? He simply means that there are some works that are absolutely invalid and cannot in any way favorably affect your salvation or mine. What are those works? Works of the law of Moses that has been nailed to the cross. Very clearly made clear in Scripture that that is the case. Works by which I could boast about salvation. That's what he's talking about here. Not of works lest anyone should boast. In other words, that would be like saying that Noah could have built that ark in exactly the way that God said to, and then have stood beside that ark and lifted his hands heavenward and said to God, Now then, you must save me. You have no choice because I have earned it. Look at this boat. Noah didn't do that. Noah knew that when he did everything just as God had commanded, he was still an unprofitable servant, and totally dependent still upon the grace of God, but that without his obedience that grace could never have been extended because God is God, and God is not a respecter of persons. But in every nation, he who fears him and works what? Boastful works? No. Works of the law of Moses? No. But who works, what did Peter say? Righteousness is accepted. And that brings us to verse 10 of Ephesians 2, which explains it so beautifully. For we are his, God's, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Not works that I've devised, try to save myself. Not works of the law of Moses that could not save, but good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess Jesus to be the Christ and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Those are the works that God has prepared for the one who would become his follower. And then upon arising from that watery grave, having been buried with him and made alive together with him and raised to sit in heavenly places. If you're a Christian, are you sitting in heavenly places today? Absolutely. What is that reference to heavenly places? The church. You've been raised to walk in newness of life, you've been raised to sit in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the church. But you must meet the requirements just as Noah had to in his time. Just as those who were blameless under the law of Moses, though that law could not absolutely save, but only pointed to the ultimate shedding of the blood of Christ. But those who were blameless under that law could anticipate that salvation through the blood when it was shed and received that salvation. And now, today, it is the actual shedding of that blood 
that you must contact in order to be saved. And the only place to contact that is in burial in water where the blood of Christ is applied. And once you've contacted that blood, you rise to walk in newness of life. Walking with God. Not under the same particulars that Enoch walked with God or that Noah walked with God or that Moses walked with God. But walking with God, doing the good works that God has prepared in this dispensation of time, the final dispensation, the Christian age, in order to be pleasing to him. The Christian life, and I've said this before, is a life of works from beginning to end. And I can prove it with two passages. One we just read. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. When were you created in Christ Jesus? When you became a Christian. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. That's the beginning. And what about the end? When do those good works end? Look at Revelation 14 and verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Christianity is a life of works from beginning to end. You can't even begin the Christian life without the works of obedient faith that leads you to become a child of God. And from that day forward, when you arise from the waters of baptism, you work until you die or until the Lord comes again. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Christianity A life of works from beginning to end. What a far cry that is from the statements with which we began. We're saved by grace alone plus nothing. You're saved by faith, period. There's nothing you can do to be saved, Glenn Owen and Rubel Shelley. Our salvation arises entirely and only from grace. It is entirely of grace through faith. It is a scandalous and outrageous lie to teach that salvation arises from human activity We do not contribute one whit to our salvation. How sad, how tragic, when the Bible is so abundantly clear on the subject of grace, the groundwork for which can clearly be seen right here in the book of Genesis. Today, if you would be saved, it is by grace, and without that grace, there's no hope for you, for me, for anybody. But it's not grace alone, and it's not grace through faith alone but grace through the obedient faith, which we've outlined sufficiently in this lesson for you to respond to it, either in becoming a Christian or coming home to your first love as a wayward child as we stand to sing.